text versus believing and, and try and uh, place ourselves uh, into a situation where we can hear what the writer is saying, what Paul is saying, and maybe understand how the sorts of things that Paul was speaking about also creeps into our life and creeps into how we live our life. Have you ever found the simple things to be hard? Is there anyone like that here? Uh, is there anyone who complicates things? Are you sitting next to a complicated person? Do you never put your hand up in church? I just saw Jim put his arm around Carol, I'm not sure what that's a sign of. Um, you know, I tend to be someone who can turn the simple into complicated, I'll, I'll be honest there. You know, if you can sort of make it harder than what it ought to be, I'm pretty confident I can find a way. Why is the simple so hard? This idea of faith, believing, what is so hard about faith and believing? It is so simple. Why is it so hard for us? Why is it such a hard concept? I wonder if it's the idea of ego. I wonder if it's the idea of, of me and myself and I and having a sense of who I am grappling with how I see myself in the world, the construct that I create of myself in my own life, my ego. I wonder if that gets in the way of the simple. I wonder if just the, the concept of believing is a problem because, because of me, because of my ego. I wonder. So today we're going to look at this simplicity of faith concept and then linking that with the evidential nature of faith, the, the necessity of faith always requiring some sort of a leap. Paul has a very simple question for the Galatians which he asks in two different areas and he asks the Galatians many questions but this one in particular from Galatians 3 verse 2 and verse 5, he says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? A very simple question around a simple concept. Why is it so complicated? Why do we struggle with the simple? So again, I like to have confession and I would like to offer a confession to you this morning. Is that okay? All right, uh, don't judge me, but I'm going to confess. During the week, there was an opportunity for a few of the strongest guys in the world, the smartest guys in the world, to come to the church and just do a few little things that needed to be done. So Nick came, Ken came and I came. And we put our heads together to fix certain things. And I just want to give you a, a confession. We had to fix a bracket. And this bracket was a little bit bent. It was a little bit out of shape. And so we thought, okay, let's bang the bracket flat. You understand? Now, it wasn't quite a right angle, but I couldn't find a picture that would illustrate it exactly. But you get the picture. The angle needed to be straighter. And this one was bent. So I am thinking, right, how are we going to do this? I've got a 10-point plan, I've got a picture of a vice, 
I've got a picture of hydraulics, so I'm, I'm just thinking through all these things. And in the midst of my thinking, Nick says, let's take it up to the other side where there was some flat stone. I thought, that's a great idea, didn't think of that. So then I go back to my complex thinking and I'm, I'm trying to work out, okay, if I hold it there and I bang it down, it could hurt my hand. Okay, how can I not hurt my hand? Gloves, I've got gloves. I'll go and get gloves. Who knows that gloves really help you protect your hand from metal smashing into your hand, yeah? That was what I thought. So I'm preparing with my welder's mask, with my hazmat suit. I've got it all prepared. The moon landing is set up for this metal to be straight. And then we're about to, you know, actually do it. And, and so, so I just observed Nick kind of knows what he's doing. And I, say, I said, I couldn't help myself because I'm struggling with the complexity of this issue. And I said, how are we going to make it straight? Because I'd thought through every possibility and there was just no real easy way. And then I held it flat, so it was like that. And I said, if I hold it, do you want to bang it? And Nick just looked at me, and I didn't realize at the time, but I think it was, are you an idiot? <laughs> and he just turned it over. And without my help, just started banging it down. And the whole thing went flat. <laughs> that was the biggest light bulb moment of my week. I just erupted in laughter, half of my stupidity, half of the genius of something so simple. Why do we make simple things so complex? Isn't it amazing how someone like me can just marvel at the simplicity of the solution? I still marvel at the simplicity of the solution now. My whole life I've been doing stuff like that, instead of just going done. Why do we make simple things so complex? When was the last time you were called an idiot? Don't say this morning. When was the last time you were called stupid or thoughtless or superficial or senseless or crazy, unwitty, witless, irrational? Dangerous words, dangerous words. When was the last time you felt those words? Paul, in the writings that we're looking at, calls the Galatians foolish Galatians. When I went through the myriad of English translations, that word foolish comes out in all those other words too. You foolish Galatians, you stupid Galatians, you idiots, you, you senseless Galatians. As the Bible grapples with this simple word foolishness. People have identified all these other words that fit and make sense. Paul sees something so simple, yet these Galatians have made it so complicated. Paul is passionately and aggressively defending the simplicity of the gospel. And as Andrew shared this morning, there is something in our culture that desires to complicate our lives. Most people will say, I am more tired this year of my life than I was last year of my life. Most people say, I am busier now than I was before. Even people who have retired say, I'm busier now than I was before. How can this be? 
What is it about our culture? What is it about our society that seems to have a way of complicating this simple life that God has given us, this gift? How does the gospel fit into that? How does it work? Paul is passionately encouraging the Galatians, and not just encouraging the Galatians, but connecting what happened to Peter as well as to the people in Galatia. You see, for Paul, there are implications for salvation. For Paul, there is a connection between the salvation event, the moment where you acknowledge Christ as Lord and Saviour, and the way you live your life. There's a connection there for Paul. And so, works versus believing, the implications of salvation, are there implications for eternity? Yes. Is there implications for peace with God? Yes. Is there implications for glory to God? Yes. This life now? Yes. And so the way the Galatians were viewing salvation and what they thought they had to do to make sure that they were saved, in other words, adding to the work Jesus had done, was actually going to affect the way they would live their life for Christ. And so, Paul is aggressively defending the simplicity of the gospel because Paul understands that when you simply believe and accept that Jesus Christ was Lord, that He came and died for us on the terrible, torturous cross, He gave Himself freely, was raised again from the dead, and now He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we believe that, It changes the way we live our life right now, at this time, in this era, in this culture. But when we add things to it, in the most subtle ways, our life becomes choked. A bit like if you could imagine a seed that was planted and this little plant began to grow, but there were other weeds around it that just kind of took its space, that that stopped some of the nutrients from reaching the plant we want to grow because the weeds took it. That, that, that stopped this, this, this plant being able to reach its full potential of life because of the weeds that were around it. You see, for Paul, to add to salvation doesn't just affect your concept of salvation, doesn't just call into question what Jesus did, but for Paul, it actually affects how you live your life right now, today. Right now, today. Paul sees this life in a certain way post-Christ. He says, we are God's masterpiece. Have a good look at the person next to you right now. Have a good look at the person behind you and in front of you, if your neck can get around that far. Do you realise that you are looking at a masterpiece? Now, Mark Trelaw, if you say to Kai, you're my masterpiece, that's a big win. Yeah. Now's your opportunity. Kai's not sure. <laughs> we, we are his masterpiece. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that? Because of Christ, you are a masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ so that we can do good things. Good things that He planned for us long ago. 
You see, when my heart and my conscience is clear, when I realize that God's love for me is relentless, that there is nothing that can come between myself and Jesus, that I can come before Him and confess and and He accepts me the way I am. When I realize that, I can live my life with a new freedom, with a clean conscience every day. His mercies are new every morning. Not yesterday's mercies, not what Jesus did for me last week, but what He's done for me again today. That's beautiful. That changes the way we live our life today. So, so of course, Paul perhaps is describing something that Jesus Himself said in John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine. Maybe a Shiraz? I don't know. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Anyone who doesn't remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And you know what? This brings great joy. Sorry, great glory and joy. Great glory to my Father. Jesus is describing Himself, what it means to be a masterpiece, what it means to be created anew, what it means to be something in Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me. We declared in our heart that we are dead, we were crucified with Christ, and we attached ourselves completely and wholly to the life of Christ, not through anything we did, We can do nothing. That's exactly what the Galatians are trying to do. Add something. Because of Christ, we are now found in Him. Remain in Him. There's a a theologian called Rudolf Bultmann and he talks about this idea of remain. I want want you to capture this, this idea that he expresses as real loyalty. Do you realize that Christ is totally loyal to you? He he sees you not as you see yourself. He sees you in this most amazing love that covers a multitude of sin. He, he, He sees you as a new person. He sees you as someone who has now the life of himself within He sees you so differently, I think, to how we see ourselves. Because those words that we had up before, they're words, the voices of our world, the voices of ourself. Sometimes I am a bit stupid, and sometimes I am a bit of an idiot, and sometimes I am this and I am that. Do you know that depression and anxiety are significant issues in our culture today? What would it mean to people who are suffering with that? How would it help? to know that Jesus says something else about you and about me. How would that affect, how would that change us? How would that challenge us? Surely it would help us to rise up from within and go, wow, Jesus really thinks that? Jesus really died for me? Am I that valuable, worth dying for? Paul talked about good things for us to do. Jesus says, 
you will produce much fruit if you remain in me, if you're loyal to me. You see, truth and loyalty are never opposed if you're loyal to the capital T, truth. When you are loyal to Christ, when you are loyal to the cross, when you remain loyal, there is never any conflict between truth and loyalty. It's only when you become loyal to something else other than Jesus that the truth begins to be compromised. That is what Paul is going on about. Have you ever faced truth and loyalty in your workplace? Have you ever faced that issue? There's an expectation for you to be loyal to someone when really the truth of what they're doing is not right. It's an awkward place to be, isn't it? But Jesus never, ever puts us in that place at all. He never, ever. Jesus is loyal to us. Isn't that amazing? Salvation is not just a ticket to eternity, but salvation is a moment where we can live our life fruitfully here and now. Salvation is not just a, an entry into a nice set of doors up there in the sky, the, you know, the nice pearl, pearly white gate images that have been talked about forever, pictures. It's not just a ticket. Salvation is meant for us right now, for the good things for us to do right now and here, to enjoy the goodness of this life God has given us freely and with good conscience. You see, for us, in order to bring, really bring glory to God, in order to live fruitful lives, we, we, we must be His children. So Paul expresses this using Abraham as a linkage point for the Galatians. And in chapter 3 and verse 7 of Galatians, he says this, Paul, Paul says, uh, the real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. This is about the issue of identity. Who do I belong to? Who do you belong to? Do you, do you really live your life in a way? Are you really convinced that you actually belong to God, that He absolutely accepts you right now? even though you're looking at yourself and you are aware of those things and maybe the voice of ego is speaking other things, are you convinced that you are a child of God? Are you convinced of that? Paul is using this idea of Abraham because for the Galatians, they've slipped back into thinking, okay, I've got Jesus, I believe Him, but I need to do some other things. I need some ceremony. I need some circumcision. Ugh. I need all sorts of things in addition to what Jesus has done. What is it that we need? Do we need air conditioning? Daylight today, absolutely. Do we need comfy chairs? I'm only talking about the physical. What about emotionally? Do we need friends here? Do we, need, do we need people in our life who care about me? There's nothing wrong with what I've said, is there? We would all love those things. In fact, it's important for us to practice those things, including air conditioning, hallelujah. But it has nothing to do with salvation. Christ and Christ alone. But it's incredible how much 
uh, Mia's studying osmosis at the moment at school. It's incredible how much through osmosis that the world creeps into our life and affects our understanding of salvation, affects our practice of salvation, osmosisfully. C.S. Lewis uh, has a view about, I think, what we're talking about. You see, in the, Jewish, uh, in the Greek culture, they were fascinated by Jewish spirituality. The Greek culture of, of the day that Paul's writing into, they just loved any mysticism they could find. They, they just ate it up. They incorporated it into their belief systems. It was like, you know, watching MasterChef of today. They just loved to watch, you know, MasterChef mysticism shows. They sat around talking about it. It was everyone's dream to be at a place where you could be someone who would just sit around talking about the facts of life, how life works. Is it that different today? Is it, have we really changed that much? C.S. Lewis sums it up like this. He says in uh, his book, Screwtape Letters, this is Screwtape speaking, prosperity knits a person to the world. They feel they're finding their place in it, but really it's finding its place in them. Prosperity, this idea of increasing reputation and importance and the right acquaintances and, and absorbing an agreeable work, work that I feel matters and where I belong and where I am increasing in reputation and where I'm becoming bigger and better. C.S. Lewis is talking about this sort of prosperity. It, it builds a sense that I actually belong here in this earth. This is actually my home. And we forget that we're citizens of heaven. I think C.S. Lewis is onto something profound for us. I think for us, we allow this idea of, of our needs and the, the needs that, that are met through prosperity to enter into our lives and it affects our salvation in, in the way of how we work out our salvation, in the way of how we live for Christ. It affects us. It affects how we view what we ought to do. It affects our priorities. It affects how we evaluate our life and measure ourselves, because our ego voice is still working overtime, speaking to us. Yet the gospel is so simple. It just wipes away all of that. It just says, just, just believe. You're my children. I've got you covered. I've taken care of you. I've made a way for you. There's a solution for you. That's an eternal solution. It's living water of eternity. You never need to drink again. You'll never thirst again after you've tasted my living water. Paul is making a blatant statement against the ego, against the need for us to control. He says something profound that we all probably know as memory verses as kids. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We love talking about a full life, but I wonder if we ought to also celebrate the fact that it's no longer I that lives. Should we celebrate that? It's no longer me that lives, it's Christ in me. 
Isn't that something worth celebrating? Isn't that something worth cheering and encouraging one another on? Isn't that something worth fighting for aggressively as Paul is writing to the Galatians? Hey guys, it's no longer, it's no longer you that are living. Don't, don't get involved with the ceremony stuff. It's just Christ in you that matters. Our identity is now in Christ. We're in Him. It's faith alone in Jesus. It's the simplicity of faith versus our desire to create an insurance policy. I love insurance. I confessed last week about my vacuum cleaner saga and I claimed on insurance. I just claimed the crack on my phone on insurance, got my money back. I love it, I love it, I love it. My free credit card insurance. There's not enough cheers in this room. I am (laughs) so overjoyed with that. You guys just going, yeah, we've done it before. When was the last time you heard me say, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ in me? When was the last time I was cheered on for that? It's worth cheering on, is it not? How does Paul argue for faith? How does does Paul express faith beyond calling them stupid and foolish and idiots and senseless? (laughs) Doesn't it feel good sometimes when you say words like that? I get myself in so much trouble, you can't believe. Uh, This was me when I was 12 years old. Um, This is called the Iron Cross, the A-grade of gymnastics. Now, I'll be honest, I have never even thought of attempting that. My brother used to find a doorway and hold on to the top of the door and lift himself up and do a chin-up. I just cheered him on. Good on you, mate. That is one of the hardest things. that they, They say that you have to train for at least a year, intense training for a year, to even think about attempting that. In fact, when you go into that training, you are already so fit and so buff and so tough that you then commence a year's worth of training to even try this. In the Olympics, there's a 15-degree limit. If you're more than 15 degrees out where your shoulders and your arms and your wrists kind of measure up into a straight line, if you're 15 degrees out, they deduct points from your score. Uh, I just have no chance. I think I would be lucky to hang for two seconds, let alone hold this position for two seconds. That is very hard work. I understand Jim as a PE teacher used to do that with all his students. <laughs> Maybe he has a chance to train you. But do you know that Jesus did a work that we just could not do? He stretched his arms out and he allowed his hands to be pierced and he hung there for hour after hour after hour after hour. He was sinless and without blame. And He gave up His life for us because He loves us. Jesus died a most torturous death and He gave His life freely. Galatians 2.20, again, expresses the heart of Christ for us. 
It says that Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. So what does that mean for how I should live my life? If Jesus gave himself to me and gave himself for me, shouldn't that affect the way I live and the decisions I make and and the priorities of my life? Shouldn't there be something obvious that you can go, that is a follower of Jesus and that isn't? Shouldn't it be that obvious? That is someone who loves Christ. That is someone who, who they're, they're dead to the world and it's Christ living in them. And, and this is another person who's not yet saved, who hasn't yet experienced that yet. Shouldn't there be a difference? Because that guy, he looks different to me, doesn't he? He looks really strong. You could tell if we were standing here together which one was me and which one was him. You could tell the difference. You know, when Jesus creates us anew, He completely changes us. Our insides, our heart, our soul, our mind. Everything is transformed. To be anew in Christ means that we think differently now. And that's the power of this forgiving work, this work of Christ who hung on the cross because, you know what? I just knew that even after I got saved, I was probably going to make a few mistakes. And so he continues to forgive me, continues to cheer me on, continues to encourage me, continues to to lead me on into a life where I really know that he loves me. Do you really know that you're loved today? On our website, we have hits. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Hits and website. Do you know the second biggest hit on our website consistently, month after month after month, is an article that Jeff Biley wrote? You know what it's about? God's love. Consistently, the most highest hit, second most highest hit on our website. People are desperate for love. Do we know that we are loved? we know it? Do we know it? Paul changes a gear and begins to connect Abraham into what he's doing with the Galatians. You see, the Galatians have headed back to where they came from. And so, Paul remarks about this man, Abraham. Abraham was a crazy guy. He, he, he was nuts. He had no Google Maps. He had no Siri. He just had the voice of God. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says, hey, go to a place I will show you. And Abraham says, that's good enough for me. Wow. They call him the father of faith. Such a simple decision to make where he heard the voice of God and he went. And Hebrews says, he did not know where he was going. Have you ever hopped in your car and done that before? Like proper, not knowing where you're going. I did that once, but I knew where I was going. We, we were going to border town just because we could. And it was when I was young and, and idiot and senseless and silly. And we just drove there because we wanted to go for a drive. And then we drove home. I knew where I was going, but even though we thought, we don't know where we're going. Abraham did not know where he was going, says the writer of Hebrews. Yet Abraham exhibited this faith this belief in the voice of God. 
He went there by faith. He went there to this land that was promised to him. Yet he, he never lived to see it fulfilled. Yet he died with faith. That was credited to him as righteousness. You see, the Bible's always been about faith and believing. It hasn't changed, except Jesus came because we couldn't do it. And so now we have a way to know his forgiveness and to live our life in Christ, because Christ is in us. Faith is the currency of heaven. Faith is your heavenly visa card. Faith is what matters. Faith is your line of credit. Faith is how we live our life. And one of the things I've been challenged by constantly is, is there something in my life every day that I can point to the exercising of faith? Is there something where I exercise my faith in my every day? Does my salvation permeate my every day? Does my relationship with Christ permeate what I think and do every day? Is there something where I have exercised my faith in my every day? Abraham did it. So, Paul connects what Abraham did, instead of pointing to circumcision, which happens in Genesis 17, I think, Paul points to something that happened much earlier. He points to how Abraham just believed the voice of God and went. The simplicity of faith always requires some sort of a leap, some sort of a jump off, some sort of a step. It just requires it. Yet in our culture, we have one of evidence, don't we? We need evidence. It's so hard for us to take a leap of faith. It's so difficult for us. Yet Hebrews talks about this idea of faith being confidence in the hope, the hope and the assurance, something that we cannot see yet, something that is beyond what we can see, yet we still choose to believe. This is faith. And so Paul uses this idea of being children of Abraham, children of faith, to say, hey, Galatians, don't go to ceremony. Don't, you don't become children of Abraham through circumcision. You don't become children of Abraham by wearing certain clothes. You don't become children of faith. You become children of Abraham through faith, just believing in Christ. That's it. I just want to show you quickly, when Abraham went to the promised land and he left, he parked about here somewhere between Bethel and I. And at that point, it records a story in, Galatians 12, in Genesis 12, 13, where Lot and Abraham and his people are fighting with each other because there's not enough room on the land. Imagine a two-bedroom house with two families, with three kids or four kids each, okay? Okay, six kids. In the case of, yeah, sorry, sorry, Jim. Um, so, imagine that. Imagine there's this house is loaded. Everyone's fighting. So, Abram says, listen, let's separate. Our relationship is more important. Where do you want to go? If you go that way, I'll go this way. So, Lot looks around and he chooses this area down here, okay? I just want you to remember the lake and I want you to remember some towns down there. He chooses that area and he, and, he, and he heads off. And immediately after that, God comes to Abraham and says, don't worry, he thinks he's chosen the best land. But you know what? Look that way, look that way, look that way, and look where he just went, all that is yours. I'm going to make, I'm, I'm going to cause a multiplication to occur where, where you are the father of nations. There's going to be so many descendants that you... If you can count the stars and the sand, of course you can't. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Straight away, after this leap of faith, 
Abraham has experienced the promise of God come to him. And what does Lot choose? Lot chooses this area that seems good. This area is like the world. After the tribes of Israel are established, you see the lake there? There's another lake there. It's a Dead Sea. Um, see that area called Moab? Notice it's not part of the promised land. Beware things that promise but can't deliver. Lot went to something that promised but was never ever going to deliver. That's the trap of the world. That's what C.S. Lewis talks about. C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of prosperity, how we feel at home in it and this is really a good place to live but you know what? That's not part of the promise of God. That's not part of His promised land. The only way to the promised land is to listen to the voice and believe and trust. That's the only way. And so the Galatians who would have known this text and would have known the story would have gone, oh, I can't see, I, I think I get you, Paul. We're, we're trying to circumcise ourselves to make sure we've got salvation and all we need to do is just believe. I'm going to close with an image of a kite. And in Galatians 3.12, it speaks of the way of faith is very different to anything else. Who here has flown a kite before? Anyone? You know, it annoys me having to get it set up, but if someone's already got a kite out there, don't you just want to go and have a bit of a fly? I mean, I know what it's like, but isn't it just cool? About eight or nine years ago, uh, the church we were at, uh, we went on a, a men's and boys camp, and we went to Kite and Rocks, and my son here was with me, Joshy, and, and he was very sick, so he didn't go surfing. And there was a, a man there who also didn't go surfing, his name was Bruce Spalding, he works at ARB, if any four-wheel drivers want a good contact, he can help. He uh, had a kite. So he pulled the kite out and he took my son kiting. And so this next picture is Joshy on the beach with Bruce. And it's a bit hard to see, but I, you, you need to understand that on Bruce's face is the biggest smile in the world. It's, it's the most hugest smile. And Joshy is holding on to this kite with one hand because he's a tough guy. He doesn't need two hands, just one hand. And he's concentrating and just enjoying this kite. He doesn't know how it works. He doesn't really know what's holding it up there. He can feel some tension there, but it's, it's happening. And, and he's loving it and learning it and enjoying it. But I can tell you now, right behind him is Bruce absolutely loving it that Josh is loving it. Are you with me? You see, when we exercise faith, it's like our Father God is behind us loving it. As we hold on to the tension, as we exercise faith and take a leap, we don't quite know how it works. We don't quite know what holds it up there. It's windy. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes it does certain things, but we just choose to hold on anyway and believe with faith. It's like, it, it, it's like God's just smiling, just loving. You need to know that God is with you. And he's smiling. His face is shining upon you. As you grip tightly faith and hold on to it, God is right there with you, smiling. He's for you and not against you. Don't be like the Galatians and get trapped. But know that God is smiling upon you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be encouraged towards Christ alone. Help us, Lord, to outwork our salvation. Help us, Lord, to live our life free from the things of the world, the other voices that would crowd it out. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would 
be encouraged, Lord, to know your word and to know your promises. That we could just hold on to that kite. We don't need to understand every detail. We don't need to understand thermodynamics. We don't need to know that. We just need to trust. Help us, Lord. Bless each one here. In Jesus' name, amen.